0: We're talking about simplicity, and today we're talking about simplifying the gospel or or, or the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. Uh, I forgot something. Let me... Um, For those of you who were here last weekend at our picnic, there is a kickball game, and the high schoolers won, so um, I'm just going to leave this here as a reminder... Right there, let you guys, can you guys over there see it? I want to make sure you can see it. I'm not going to hold it because that's too obnoxious. This is just subtle enough. Um, so we just watched that slideshow, those pictures, and the saying goes that a picture is worth a thousand words. And, and that is so true, that there are pictures that capture moments in time, that can speak of movements, that are iconic photos that hearken us back to a time or a place or to people who have done amazing things in this world. That photos are an amazing snapshot and can evoke within us amazing feelings of power or or laughter or joy or or even sadness or pain. I've got two pictures here. Uh, One, Martin Luther King Jr., I mean, this picture alone just symbolizes that entire civil rights movement and can speak to... Uh, an entire portion of our uh, history. This next photo is one of my favorites. This speaks, you know, World War II, as these men are going off to war uh, to fight in Europe. Very powerful time in our nation's history. Pictures are an amazing snapshot, but they, they never tell the whole story. For instance, let's talk about family photos. The idea of a family photo is that you get together, maybe go to a studio, and it somehow captures the harmony and peace and beauty of your family. But what actually happens is that the kids are wearing matching outfits and they're uncomfortable, so they start complaining. Mom has really high expectations for the day and wants the kids to stop complaining, but they won't. So she starts getting mad. She starts crying because things aren't going the way she wants them to. Dad's angry because mom's crying. Dad yells at the kids. Kids are crying. And somehow in all of this, you get a picture. When you look at it afterwards, you say, wow, we are such a happy family. (laughs) And you put it on your mantle to show the rest of the world how happy you are. But in reality, that day was far from happy. The picture a great snapshot, but it never tells the full story. This is uh, a family photo of my family in Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh, as you can see, we look very happy. Daniel, the one in the middle, is kind of looking off to the side. I don't know what he's doing. What actually happened was that we had asked this woman to take a photo for us. And she, had just, she was about to sit down and had just had a Subway sandwich she was about to eat. She was off work and hadn't eaten all day, and she was, as she said, very looking forward to eating the sandwich. We said, hey, would you mind taking a photo of us real quick? She goes, yeah, yeah, no problem. So she, she grabs the camera and turns around, and a flock of seagulls descends upon the sandwich and destroys it right there. And we are laughing at her in this picture. Our happiness was actually at her expense. You see, a snapshot, our picture is a great snapshot, but it never tells the whole story. Uh, think about weddings. When you see a bride and groom kiss, you know that they're married, that this snapshot kind of symbolizes that the ceremony is complete, they've united and ended with a kiss, and now we'll head off to reception and a big party. But the picture doesn't show us the fact that they exchanged vows, that they exchanged rings, that at this ceremony, this was my brother-in-law's, that they wash each other's feet. See, a picture is a great snapshot, but it never tells the whole story. And I don't think anyone would deny that we've become a picture-driven culture. Just look at the popularity of Instagram. It has transformed mainly the way that we eat food and share it with others. That's all we do is just take photos of food and look at what I'm eating. Um, Good, I'm glad you're eating. My fear is is that in a picture-driven culture that we've taken a picture of the gospel and that we've been sharing a picture of the gospel with others. And as you know, a picture is a great snapshot, but it never tells the full story. So let's look at some bumper stickers that we've maybe seen in other people's cars that are pictures or snapshots of the gospel. And and as we look at these, let's ask ourselves the question, what does this communicate about the gospel? So we've got one right behind me. One cross, three nails, four given. A great math equation right there. What this message tells us is that the cross is the centerpiece of Jesus' gospel, that it is through his death that we receive forgiveness. And this is central stuff to the Christian story. Without this, you don't have a Christian story. But is it the whole story? Next one. Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. In this, we are reminded that Christianity is about forgiveness, not necessarily making you perfect, but about God releasing you and forgiving you of the debts that we have incurred. But the just in this sentence implies that there's not much more to Christianity other than that, that Christians are just forgiven. Is that really all that there is? Is this the whole story? Is it just forgiveness? Or this next one, God, Jesus, it's hell without him. This kind of communicates that if you follow Jesus, you go to heaven, and if you don't, you spend life apart from God. Uh, and we would describe that as hell. And this is true, that, that Christians through their relationship with Jesus know that heaven is their eternal destiny, and that apart from Jesus, there is not life with God forever. But is this the whole story? Now, let me be clear. I am not saying that Jesus' death and resurrection are not central aspects of what God has done or who he is and the ways he's working in this world. I am not promoting universalism or saying that heaven and hell are not real or that don't worry about it because it doesn't matter. What I'm concerned with is that we have promoted a transactional view of the gospel, is that just as our culture is centered on and around the buying and selling of goods, that we've packaged the gospel in such a way that you just give God a sinner's prayer, and then you get heaven. And that's what it's all about. To kind of illustrate this, I was uh, three years old. My mom tells me this story, and I came to her one day, and I said, Mom, are there owies in heaven? I was adorably cute, by the way. Um, she goes, No, there's no owies in heaven. She goes, how do I get to heaven? She goes, oh, well, you asked Jesus into your heart. I, said, I want Jesus in my heart. So I prayed with my mom that day and received Jesus. She wasn't sure if I understood what I was doing because the next day I came to her and said, mom, I don't want Jesus in my heart anymore. I don't want to tell him all the bad stuff that I do. Apparently, I was harboring some deep dark secrets that I didn't want to share with the rest of the world. Uh, but even I think my three-year-old self kind of grasped this idea that if Jesus gets me into heaven, I want that. But if there's accountability If he's going to check in on how I'm living, I don't want that, send that back to the store. The problem with the transactional view of gospel is that Jesus becomes a means to getting to heaven rather than a God with whom we live daily life with. And and it can lead to types of sayings like, I know they're good because they prayed the prayer 10 years ago, but their lives have really, they're not really different, they haven't changed at all. But they prayed the prayer, so I know they're good. They're a believer, maybe not really a follower or a disciple. We forget that Jesus said, go and make disciples, not marginal believers. See, a transactional gospel boils God down to just a ticket for us to get what we want, rather than a God who invades every aspect of our lives. Now, some of you guys might be thinking, but doesn't the Bible say that everyone who confesses Jesus is Lord will be saved? This is absolutely true. But the problem is is that we tend to bifurcate or divide what we say, what we do, and what we believe, so that what you say is kind of one category, but you can do certain things or believe certain things, and those don't necessarily relate to what you've believed. This idea is foreign to Scripture, that what you confess therefore has an impact on what you believe and what you do, that the three are interrelated, so you don't just make a confession and then just go live your life how you want to. But when you confess Jesus as Lord, it's going to impact everything about your life. Or we look at the passage that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And from this we're reminded that, yes, it's about heaven, but if you go back to the Gospels, I think Jesus was so much more concerned about getting heaven into people, not necessarily people into heaven. You see, this phrase eternal life is not just about a quantity of life. It's about quality, about caliber, about substance, that it's to be a life so filled with with divine and eternal aspects that the only way to describe this abundant life would be the word eternal. Eternal. In fact, Jesus himself actually gives us a definition of what eternal life is. This is John 17, 3. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent that that eternal life is not just a after you die get into heaven kind of thing but it's knowing Jesus now equates to an eternal kind of life. So Jesus wants to get heaven into people before he gets people into heaven. That he wants to fill our lives so full with this eternal type of life that we begin living now and it continues past death into the everlasting. That is eternal life. Not just this thing that we wait for until we die. Eternal life can begin now because we know Jesus and we know God. As you can see, we've kind of, I think we've missed the whole story. Think about it this way. If the gospel is only articulated or makes sense once Jesus dies, then Jesus never preached the gospel. If the gospel starts with his death and resurrection, he was around for maybe 40 days after his death. There's not much time to preach the gospel there. His whole life, his teachings, his miracles are utterly meaningless. And the idea that Jesus didn't preach the gospel is almost ludicrous. Jesus came to preach the gospel. So the irony is, is that we've already simplified the gospel. But I think we've simplified it in a manner that has truncated it, that we don't tell the whole story. So what did Jesus preach? What was his gospel? Turn to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15 in your Bibles, or it'll be on the screen behind me. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. So Jesus is proclaiming the gospel and saying, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So here Jesus says that the gospel is the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God is at hand. It is at near. It is on the horizon. It is breaking into the present moment. And that all who want to participate in this are called to repent and believe to better understand what Jesus is getting at, we need to know more about this kingdom of God that he talks about. And and, in simple terms, the kingdom of God is the reign and rule of God. And there are even two aspects within this. Is that one, that God's reign speaks to the fact that he is already king over all the universe. That he has created everything, and nothing can question his kingship, nor will anything ever question his kingship. He is king. We see this in passages like Isaiah 43, 15. It says, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the creator of Israel, your king. God is king. Or in Psalm 99, it says, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. So there's one sense in which God is king. He does reign. But there's also a sense in which the Jews kind of saw the brokenness in the world, and they recognized that God was not reigning on earth as he was in heaven. And so they longed for a day when God would establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Passages like Zechariah 14.9, where it says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. You see, there was this expectation, this hope, this longing that God would actually descend from heaven and come to reign on earth and that he would begin to set all wrongs right and would transform all of the world so that in a sense, there was no divide between heaven and earth, but that they would be one, united, because God was reigning on earth. As he does in heaven. The crazy part about Jesus' message is that he comes on the sea and he says, This kingdom of God that you've been waiting for, it's here. God's reign and rule is breaking into the present moment. It is happening right now. And it's happening through me. You see, Jesus says, I am the one who is establishing God's kingdom. So the fact that I am here in many ways proclaims that I am God as I reign, that God is reigning in and through me. God's kingdom is being established. Come, join me in this. Submit to God's reign and rule. Give your lives over to this movement. Let God transform you. So Jesus begins to proclaim this, and then he displays it through his life and his miracles. He proclaims that God's kingdom is here, and then he finds two fishermen. He says, hey, come follow me. Leave your job behind. Get caught up in this kingdom life. Let God's reign and rule so infect your life that you become a hook on which other people get caught into this kingdom life. Or as Jesus said, come, be fishers of men. Jesus comes upon a man who has been ruled by an unclean spirit, and Jesus casts out the unclean spirit, proclaiming that in his kingdom it's about freedom, that rather than being ruled by unclean spirits or things that are not of God, that his kingdom would be ruled by God, and that God would rule each individual life, not these spirits. Jesus casts that out and says, come, live this kingdom life. Participate in what God is doing. He comes upon blind people and he gives them sight and he says, no longer will no one be able to see what God has done or what God is doing, but all will have eyes to see that God is moving in this world, that God is at work. He comes upon those who are crippled and lame and he makes them to walk and says, there will be no brokenness in my kingdom, but that my kingdom is defined by wholeness. Freedom to go and to travel and to proclaim that God is moving in every aspect of society. He sets captives free. He says, prison is not what my kingdom is like. My kingdom is freedom. He touches lepers. And in that time, a leper would have to walk around and yell, unclean, unclean, so that people could move out of the way and avoid them. And Jesus puts his hand out and he touches the leper breaking down the societal barriers and proclaiming that the kingdom of God is open to everyone from the greatest to the least of these. He shares a table with prostitutes and sinners and proclaims that God's kingdom rule is infecting every part of society, that the business and the brothel alike will both come under God's reign and rule. And that God will move even in those spheres of life. Jesus proclaimed that the kingdom of God was happening in and through him. And the leaders did not like this. They began to get angry. And they began to conspire against him. And they began to rile the crowd up. Till finally the crowd says, crucify him. Crucify him. And they take Jesus and they kill him on a cross. And his followers are broken, dejected, lost all hope. Because the kingdom they thought was being established is now dead. That the one through whom God's reign and rule would be made to come to earth had now died. But three days later, Jesus breaks the bonds of death and says, This kingdom is firmly established forever. That rather than his death and resurrection being the starting point to the gospel, they are the culmination, the climax of all that he has been doing. So that even death will not have the last word, but life will always be the final verdict. And that Jesus is inviting us into life. My kingdom is here, he says once and for all. Come participate in this. Get caught up in this kingdom life. Death will have no hold on you. For you know that I have broken even that which all must enter. Eternal life can begin now, and death is just a blip on the radar. We can live this life with God. And so, in all of this, Jesus, in these miracles that he does, he's not having these transactions with people by just giving them a service or healing them, making them feel better. Jesus is inviting people to participate in his kingdom movement. saying, come with me. Get your hands and feet dirty. Let's jump in together. God is reigning and ruling in our midst. You can be a part of it. And your life can be transformed by it. Jesus' parables... or or what he used a lot when he was teaching. And in fact, more than anything else, Jesus talked about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Go back to your Gospels and read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you'll see over and over and over again, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Here are some of my favorite parables on this. He says, the kingdom of heaven, next slide, is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. You see, this kingdom life is so captivating, so joy-filled, so abundant and extravagant, That Jesus says that those who want to be a part of it will give all that they have to jump into it. This is new creation stuff right here. A new thing is happening, and God is doing it. And he says, this kingdom, you're going to want to be part of it. Go sell everything and jump on board. He also talks about how this kingdom is not just a moment, but it's a movement. And using this illustration of leaven, he says, the kingdom of heaven... It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. That, that just as yeast kind of fills a loaf of bread so that the whole loaf of bread becomes infected by this yeast, so too is this kingdom not just like a moment, but it's a movement. That God's kingdom movement has started small with Jesus and these 12 disciples and has now infected every part of society. He says, come be a part of it. Join me in this work, that you can participate in this kingdom life. Jesus constantly called people to repent. And this repentance is not just like a feel sorry for the wrong things that you've done or try really hard not to mess up, but know that you're probably going to mess up, but keep trying hard anyway. In its most basic form, the word repent means to turn around, a 180, so, like, imagine you're like driving 75 miles on the freeway. You throw on the e brake, turn a hard left. That that is to repent. That to, to completely alter the course of your life. So that if you were going one direction, you suddenly turn and change and go another direction. That God's kingdom movement calls for us to give up our own way of doing things and to enter and submit completely to what God is about, doing what He's doing and changing the course of our lives so we're no longer ruled by our own desires, our own wants, our own needs, but we're ruled by God's reign and rule. This is why Jesus says things like, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Kingdom is not a thing like you put your bathing suit on, you put your foot in the water and kind of test the water, see if it's good. Kingdom living is you jump in completely completely. You give it your all because it calls for and requires your all, but because God will give you all the things that you need. This is why Jesus says, don't worry about what you eat, what you wear, what's going to happen tomorrow. Today has enough worries of its own. But seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. He says, get involved in my kingdom movement. Get involved with what God is doing in the world, and God's going to take care of you. Yeah, it may not necessarily be a comfortable five-star hotel kind of life, but he'll provide for your needs and redefine what you really need. See, if you're looking for someone to validate the way that you're already living, don't come to Jesus. Because Jesus is going to look in the eyes and say, all right, jump in give me your all. Trust me. Submit your life to this movement. Come join me in what I'm doing in this world and be transformed. He's not going to just say, oh, you're fine. Just keep doing what you're doing. It's all good, brother. (laughs) Jesus is going to call for your all because the kingdom requires all because God will give you all you need. Jesus invites people to participate in the kingdom of God. A transactional gospel says, when you're walking, step on these stones only and don't mess up. Just, you've been forgiven, you're going to heaven, just don't mess it up in between. I think Jesus' gospel says, get drenched with this kingdom movement and leave footprints wherever you go. And so what is the gospel? The gospel is an invitation to participate in the life of the kingdom of God. The gospel is an invitation to participate in the life of the kingdom of God. And this includes forgiveness of sins because by his death, Jesus says, you're not gonna be burdened by those sins anymore, but you are freed from having to worry about this stuff and you are now freed to fully enter into this kingdom life. You no longer have to worry about the sin that so easily entangles but my grace is sufficient for you. Enter into this grace-filled, joy-filled, abundant life with me. The kingdom is an invitation to participate in the life of the kingdom of God. I'm sorry, the gospel. What does this look like? I think those who live in the kingdom ask themselves pretty simple questions. They say things like, God, what would you have me do today? God, who do you want me to love? God, what needs are you calling me to address? And let me illustrate this with a story. My my youth pastor, when I left high school, her name was Carrie. She moved from Northern California down to San Diego, and she began to work for a nonprofit organization. And when Carrie was there, she began to experience a bit of an identity crisis because she didn't know who she was to be ministering to. That when she worked at a church as a youth pastor, she knew, she knew who her people were. She knew who it was that she was called to love. But here at a nonprofit, she didn't know who, who her people were to minister to. So she just started praying and said, God, who do you want me to love? And God directed her attention to her upstairs neighbors. She was living in the bottom half of a the duplex. There's two girls living upstairs. And so she one day went over and said, hey, would you guys like to come over for dinner? And he said, Sure. So Carrie had these girls over and just shared her life with them, talked with them about their lives. And Carrie is one of those people who, when she talks, she can't help but speak about what God is doing in her life. So as she's sharing dinner with them, she's sharing the ways that she's participating in God's kingdom movement. And afterwards, these girls said, hey, can we do this every week? She's like, yeah, why not? And so she began to meet with them on a weekly basis, just having dinner with them, sharing with them her life. And her life was so soaked in what God was doing that it was inevitable that she was going to share God with them. And she began to go on walks in her neighborhood and say, God, what needs are there in this community? And the word loneliness came to mind. And so she said, okay, God, what do you want me to do about this? How do I meet this? And she started talking to these girls, and, and she said, what if we threw a block party for our neighborhood? They said, that would be awesome. Let's have people over. Let's throw a block party. And so she passed out flyers and put on this block party, and uh, people showed up. And and she noticed that there was a a couple numerous, maybe middle-aged kind of single men. And for a girl in her late 20s to be hanging out with older single guys can maybe be a little bit uncomfortable. But she said, you know, I'm just going to love them because God calls me to love. And so she just spent time with them and just loved on everyone who came to this block party. Well, a couple years later, she looked back at her neighborhood and found out that there were numerous sex offenders who lived in her neighborhood. No wonder loneliness was an issue. And how crazy that she puts on this block party, exemplifying the abundance, the extravagance, the love of our God, and sex offenders show up. You know, Jesus shared a table with prostitutes. I think God would have loved that block party. Carrie is someone who has been drenched in God's kingdom movement and is leaving footprints wherever she goes. She is one in my mind who has sold her house, all that she has to buy the field. She's now 30 years old, or in her 30s, uh, living in her parents' basement, unemployed for the most part. In the eyes of the world, she is a failure, complete and absolute failure. But her life is dictated by the simple question, God, what would you have me do today? She has no idea what's happening past September. But the crazy thing is, is that God always provides for her. And God does some pretty amazing things through her because she's opened to participate in the life of the kingdom. Aaron is going to come up and he's going to play a song. And I want us to just take a moment as he plays a song to reflect What is God calling you to do today? Who is God calling you to love? And it may be that the person last on your list of who you should love might be really the first. And you don't have to do something big and extravagant. Carrie started small, just had some people over for dinner. And it grew as she was faithful to what God was doing. So let's just ask ourselves this question. What would God have you do today?
1: Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and just ponder on that, what God would have us do today as the song is played. Lift up your gaze, be lifted up. Tell everyone how great the love. The love come down from heaven's gate to kiss the earth with hope and grace. Singing, who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. Who is this king of glory? The Lord Strong and mighty. Lift up your hands, be lifted up. Let the redeemed declare the love. And we bow down at heaven's gate to kiss the feet of hope and grace, singing Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. There is one God, He is holy. There is one Lord over every. There is one king, he is Jesus, King of glory, strong and mighty. You are the King of glory, the Lord, strong and mighty. You are the King of glory. Strong and mighty, you are the King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty, you are the King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty.
0: should have received an envelope as you came in. I'd like for you to grab that. And on the front of it, I want you to write that the kingdom of God is here. This envelope is a reminder to you that God is inviting you to participate in his kingdom life. Saying, come join me. Let your life be characterized and defined by my reign and rule. But this envelope is also a reminder that as God invites us to participate in this kingdom life, he will transform us to become living invitations to others. So you've been invited to become an invitation. I want to leave you with this, that the kingdom of God is here. Kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here. Kingdom of, God is here. The kingdom of God is here 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 would you guys please stand and love for us to pray the Lord's prayer together? Uh, the Lord's Prayer is both a call for God's kingdom to come, but also a description of those, what those people look like who live and are transformed and characterized by this kingdom. So let's pray this together. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Peace be with you.